is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning. Welcome to today's show. On the show today, we have an exciting guest who will speak with us about gender equity, gender inclusion, LGBTQ inclusion as well in K-12 schools. She is a person who identifies herself as a body positivity and sex education advocate. Welcome to the show, soon to be Dr. Yael Rosenstock-Gonzalez. Good day and welcome. Thank you for having me, Carla. Excellent, excellent. All right, so let's go ahead, Yael, for our listeners. Yael and I know each other from Queens College, from spaces where we are engaged in this work. And going forward and doing some future programming, um, I contacted Yael um, to see about some strategic partnerships. And we had a conversation that was so enlightening for me. And I thought that it would be a really good opportunity to invite Yael onto the podcast to share her views, her perspectives, her beliefs, her opinions about how as educators, how we can think about gender equity. So Yael, I'm excited that you are here. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? Tell us who you are, your experiences, your work, and who you are and what you do in the field of gender equity, inclusion, sex education, LGBTQ, and all of that. Tell us who you are, please. Sure. So for the first thing I would say is that I am a queer cisgender woman. And so my experience is not as part of the trans community, but the trans community is part of the work that I do because I believe that it's important to include all the genders when we talk about gender equity work. I am a sex coach, intimacy, relationship, and identity coach, educator, speaker, and curriculum designer. And what this means for me is that I center identity work in all of the other things I do. So how do our ethnicities, races, genders, sexual orientations, our disability statuses influence the way that we are engaging with our self-esteem, with our sexual lives, whether it's with others or with ourselves, and our experience of body. And so my work, both research and my coaching work, often has people think through the ways in which different parts of our lives, different narratives that we've heard influence these experiences. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. How would you define um, gender equity? Gender equity, when educators talk about equity, usually racial equity tends to be elevated in those conversations, gender equity. How would you define gender equity and what does this mean in your work? How does gender equity show up in your research, your coaching, as well as your teaching work? I'd like to say that I agree with the idea of elevating racial equity. Racial Equity Liberation Group talks about a race and perspective. And so always bearing in mind race because it is such a salient piece of identity and experience within the U.S. context. But with that in mind, equality is the same and equity is addressing the needs that might not be the same for different groups. And so having parental leave is gender equality, right? Everyone deserves to have time with their families as they are developing, but gender equity might be having time if there's a birthing parent, that that parent has more time because of the physical healing process or the physical process of having a child. And so whatever their gender might be, that would be a biologically based gender equity issue. Uh, Gender equity basically, though, is just making sure that people have access 
to the same opportunities that they are seeking access to. And if there are things that are preventing that because of often historical societal structural issues, that those things are being overaccounted for, that we are saying, okay, if this population hasn't had access to blank, that not only are we making it accessible, but we're building ways to address the imbalance that has, has existed for so long. And for folks who exist outside the binary, we don't even talk about them. We only talk about men and women when we talk about gender equity generally. We don't talk about non-binary people. Often when people say women, they're talking about cis women, which are women who were assigned female at birth, and they're not thinking of trans women who were assigned male at birth and vice versa. And so I think a lot of it for me is making sure that we are bringing the conversation in with all of the genders that exist and not just focusing on what is often women in this conversation. When we're thinking about gender as a social construct, what does that mean for you within your work? How are traditional understandings of gender sort of normalized and even problematic in some ways? I think a lot of people are comfortable pushing back against gender stereotypes and gender norms, as long as people still identify with their gender in a way that feels relevant. So last night, I went to a lecture by Gabby Rivera, who's a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, and she's a writer and she's queer. And she presents, right, like a masculine woman, a masculine lesbian. And she said that when she was going to church, there was the men dressed in a certain way and the women dressed in a certain way. And everyone just looked at her and said, what are you? Like, who are you? And in her case, she is a woman. That is how she identifies. But because she pushes against the boundaries of gender more than is generally accepted, she got othered in a gender othering, even though she's still part of the binary. So I'd say that like what happens is that we are like, sure, women can be firemen or sure, men can be nurses. But then we have difficulty with men wearing dresses. And when I say men, I mean men, whether they're cis or trans, men can wear dresses and still identify as men. But once we see a man in a dress, we've decided that they, they must not be a man. Mm. And when we see a masculine woman, we might say, oh, this person has to be a lesbian. And we've assigned a sexual orientation based upon their gender presentation. And I think that's a big thing, like being able to understand that gender presentation and gender and sex and gender roles are all separate and they have overlaps, but they do not have to determine one another. Powerful, powerful. Yael, share your definitions with us <laughs> in terms of trans, in terms of cis. You mentioned binary and non-binary. You know, if you can offer some definitions for folks for some of these concepts or terms, please share if you, if you can. Sure. So as I mentioned before, so there's cisgender and transgender people. Cisgender people are people whose gender identity aligns with what was expected of them based upon the sex they were assigned at birth. So a cis man, the day that he was born, someone said, it's a boy. And today he says, I'm a man. That's a and, cis man. Sure. And that would be based primarily off from their reproductive, their biological reproductive It would be based organs. off of their genitals their external genitalia. There are five things that determine biological sex and 1.7% of the human population is intersex, but most people who are intersex do not have genitalia that tells you that they are. Mm. And so many people who think that they are male or female based upon the five categories aren't. In fact, millions of people aren't. But yes, generally like because of your genitalia, if you have a big enough penis, you're assigned male, if you have a large clitoris, you might also be assigned male. 
but often if there's an opening, then you'll be assigned female. And so, yes, these are based off of simply the external genitalia. Sure. And then trans people are anyone who does not identify with whatever they were assigned. And that's why we say assigned at birth, because it's not even that you were born that way. It's that you were assigned some sort of construct based upon what your genitalia on the outside looked like. So trans people are people whose gender identity differs from that which they were assigned, which means if you are someone who does not identify with the binary, then you count as trans, although not everyone who's non-binary would identify that way. But not being binary means that you are differing from whatever you were assigned, because everyone at this point in the U.S. at least is assigned male or female at birth. So that is shifting. So when you say binary or when the term binary is used, what does that mean exactly? Binary and non-binary in terms of identity. So binary, right, is the two, that there are two options in existence. And so when it comes to gender, the binary is male and female. And the assumption is that everyone falls into one of those two categories. Well, that's, I'm sorry, the sex is male or female and the gender is woman, man. There are folks who exist on a spectrum of gender who might experience gender fluidity, where they might feel more masculine or feminine on certain days. There are people who do not associate as a man or a woman or people who do not associate with gender whatsoever. That would be agender, like asexual, but for gender. Mm. And yeah, there's just a lot of different experiences. There's been talk about right Native American populations, some of whom have had two-spirit as an identity marker that relates to a combination of gender identity, sexual orientation, and other aspects of oneself that is a bit complex and not easily mapped onto Western signifiers, but is also outside the binary because Mm -hmm. anyone who's not identifying as a man or not identifying as a woman is non-binary or is outside the binary. So let's think about these experiences and ideas within people of education. So let's say there's an educator who wants to facilitate a girls mentoring a leadership program and the educator, assumingly so, comes to this work with a heteronormative understanding of identity, gender, et cetera. How might that be limiting and what might be some of the affordances of having that perspective, but particularly the limitations? What might be some of the concerns that an educator may have if wanting to elevate and prioritize equity and inclusion, but it's coming from this work with a traditional heteronormative cisgendered perspective? Yeah, so I think one thing is important to remember is that everyone who identifies as a girl is a girl and their body is irrelevant to that. And so if you're creating a girl's group and you are assuming everyone has a vulva and that everyone who does have a vulva will identify as a girl, that's that cis heteronormative perspective. And so a girl's group that talks about values and how you're going to get through life and the ways in which you might experience harassment or the ways that you can feel empowered as a woman, that is something that would make sense to be open to all girls, all women, anyone who identifies with this way. Now, if you specifically are saying, I want to coach a program on bodily functions, and I want to include everyone who's menstruating to get the information they need about their menstruation, then that wouldn't necessarily be a girls group. That would be a group for people who are experiencing menstruation because I was actually hired a few years ago to come speak to a girls group because the instructor realized that some of her girls weren't girls, right? Two of them, one came out, I think as trans, one came out as trans masculine. 
and another came out not knowing what their gender was and they no longer felt comfortable being part of a group that was dedicated to girls but they still wanted to be in a space where their conversations and needs were being met and so i was brought in to have these conversations and to help people figure out where they stood but the point being that these people still belonged in a space that was about menstruation but they didn't want to be in a space where they were being called girl because that wasn't true for them, especially for the one who identifies a man or a boy because they were young. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think the drawback is when you say this is a girl's group, but what you really mean is it's a cis girl's group that you are invalidating trans girls and trans feminine people who would otherwise make sense in that space. And they're now getting a message that you don't count. You're not a real girl. Otherwise, you'd be allowed in here. Mm. And on the flip side, when you want to be doing work that's related to the body, you miss out on people who their body is relevant to the conversation. And now they're not getting access to the information because they don't want to be a space in a space that is misgendering them. So there are lots of trans men who are getting pregnant now and non-binary folks who get pregnant. I mean, even lesbians who go to gynecologists and doctors are not giving the kind of care that they need to help them prevent pregnancy because there's an assumption that lesbians are only having sex with other people with vulvas. It's like, no, plenty of lesbians have sex with people with penises and then they get pregnant and they didn't expect to. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, how do you make sure that you're doing your due diligence and being responsible and not actually inflicting harm when we create groups? How are we making sure that our message is getting to everyone that we are hoping it reaches? So how can educators prepare themselves then for that? to create these spaces, to be inclusive, but at the same time, educators may come to the work with biases, with stereotypes, with judgments that might prevent that authentic equity and inclusion from happening. So what can be done for educators who might be in that space? I think like in many issues, people appreciate an effort. So if someone can see that an effort's being made, so perhaps you are used to saying, when girls get their periods, right? But a student comes up to you and says, I'm never going to get my period. Am I still a girl? That's a learning moment for an educator. And if an educator says no, (laughs) right, that they should go through some sort of training to figure out how do I make sure to not invalidate this student. And the flip side, making sure that when you're talking about, so if you're talking about periods, which is the example I bring up because we're talking about like adolescent age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you are teaching a course about bodies and you say, when people who have uteruses or when people who menstruate or when people who are born with vaginas, there are so many ways to delineate based upon what it is that you're seeking to discuss. And so I think being open to those corrections, not everyone knows them offhand. There are trainings that people can take about being gender inclusive in their language usage. Mm. It's the same way that we moved away from using mankind and Mm -hmm. men to stand Mm -hmm. for all humans that we're moving away for biological function for using women or men when what we mean are people born with certain body parts. Sure. What are your thoughts, if you have any, about the usage of inclusive pronouns? A lot of people, like for example, may have the pronouns that they wish to be identified with, say in their LinkedIn profiles, their email headers. Why is that necessary? And why should educators be attentive to the usage of pronouns and how students and other staff and adults may want to be referred to as well. I mean, young people are in such a vulnerable state when it comes to figuring out who they are, right? Like adolescence is so important developmentally for finding their independence, for finding their sense of self, for figuring out who they are in relationship to their communities, but also 
as people moving the world. And so we want to be as validating of people's experiences as possible. And pronouns are one of those ways. And I, I've heard people say that it's special treatment to use gender non-binary, so to use pronouns that are not she or he. But I would push back and say, if you are someone who expects people to call you by your own name and expects people to call you by he or she, that is to me the same level of special treatment. You're just more used to it. You are used to people using your correct name, which is for a lot of us, like with my name, Yael, I'm not used to people using my name correctly. As someone with a name that is of a different language, I spend a lot of my time correcting people's usage and pronunciation. And so that is not a privilege I have, but many people have that privilege, right? That like, I have a name and people say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. In the same way that like, if you are a cis person, you are used to people correctly using he or she around you, mm-hmm. but that is still special treatment. You are getting individualized attention that is related to your identity and related to your name. And that is what everyone else is asking for, that we respect how people are called and how they want to be referenced. And so I think it is important. And I was taught in a class this summer about gender and decolonizing gender, where they said, if you do not specify a pronoun, we will use they, them. And so now I've incorporated that into my own teaching, that if you have pronouns like she, he, zir, or what have you that you would like me to use, please tell me. But if you don't say anything, I will use they, them in when I'm using the third person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so as we think about this um, within within larger contextual conversations of equity and inclusion, what might be some final thoughts that educators and school leaders can have as they move forward in regards to decolonizing gender norms or having inclusive gender equity and gender inclusive spaces? What might be some final thoughts that educators and school leaders can have? as they move towards this work? I mean, I think listening to young people is a big part of it. They are quite aware often. And sometimes when people do not identify with a binary, so trans kids who are a binary, aka they identify as men or women, feel quite strongly quite early. Like three years old, kids know their gender. People who don't exist in the binary because there's less representation, it takes them longer. But overall, kids are aware that they're feeling uncomfortable or that something is wrong or off. And so when a child says, you know what, I think I would like to use this name today, or I'd like to try these pronouns, or I want you to refer to me in this way, to be open to that and not to force them into it either. So just because a kid one day says, you know what, today I think my name is Sally, it doesn't mean this child's now Sally, nor that this child, if, you know, let's say the name originally was Sam, that they are now trans. Mm. We need to be less concerned about permanence of identity, that kids should have the space to explore and to see and to feel what they want in the same way that we do with anything else, right? You don't tell a child, well, you thought that you might like teaching. And so now it's the only option that exists for you. You know, you gave up architecture or whatever. Like we let them explore different things. And I think the same should be true for gender identity. But I do think schools are starting to implement things. My little sister is a school teacher and they don't say boys and girls, they say friends. Mm. And so they never gender the kids as a group. They just say like, let's go friends or what have you. And I think all of those are positive steps and that they're letting kids know that it's okay, whatever it is that you want to express, that you will be safe in this space. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if you are not actually someone that you feel that you can offer that safety, then I recommend you do get training and you work with professionals because you don't want to lure children into a false sense of safety. And then they share something important with you. 
and you don't know how to respond and you do so in a way that feels crushing to them. So if you're concerned, I would say, you know, get that help, get that assistance so that when a child comes to you, you feel more confident that at the very least, you will not cause harm. And then you can spend time on your own afterwards, figuring out how to do positive work. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you, Yael, for sharing that information. As you were speaking, one thing that came to mind was that, say, liability, student consent forms and parent consent forms. Do you have any thoughts around those topics and how this comes up in your work possibly? So I find that when I'm invited into like DOE spaces or young people educational spaces, I'm not the one who has to handle that per se, but my career started actually as a reproductive rights health educator when I was 15 years old. Mm. And in that space, we learned that at least in New York state, young people have unrestricted access to reproductive rights, which means that if an 11-year-old needs birth control or an abortion, that person does not need parental supervision or consent to receive care. Mm. Now, I don't know how this relates, and that is an important question, how this relates to consent forms with parents in schools, but I don't remember having to, as a kid, fill out consent forms related to sex education classes. So my guess is at least in New York state that there are parts of this that are not restricted. And I know for research, researchers have found that it is counterproductive to get parental consent for research related to LGBTQIA issues or for sex research. And so they have moved to a a youth assent form, which means that youth are the ones who are consenting because we recognize that sometimes including parents can put children and youth at risk. Mm. If you're asking a youth about their experience as being a queer person, right, person who experiences attraction that is not heterosexual or an identity, a gender identity that's not cisgender, that their parents might not know. And if their parents don't agree, that could actually put them in danger. So my guess is that this is part of what's happening. There are states that require all sorts of ridiculousness. I mean, plenty of states require that you are inaccurate when you teach sex education, that you do not share accurate information. Mm, mm, <laughs> so I think there's like a whole bunch of things legality-wise that can run amok. But mm. in New York, I'm quite sure that there's a lot more lenience with what can be shared. So like, essentially you're saying that even if a young person wants to attend a space or a group or a club, even if their parents disagree that in some cases the student can sign their own form and still attend and participate, depending on what the topic is. Yeah, depending on what's happening and like what the situation is. So kids who, right, like a lot of kids, particularly in New York City, have access to the subway system. And so if they say they're going to Blank's house or they're going to the movies and they said attend an event, most of those things aren't asking for ID for you to be present. Mm-hmm. Right? It's different if you're going to see a pornographic film, mm-hmm. but if you're going into an educational space, those are open. So it's not so much that like if a child's parent says no, and then they do it anyway, they can get in trouble, right? Like that can certainly happen. I think it's more that there's not a, a need to ask parental consent for some of these things. But I do not, again, know exactly what the legality is because I've never sure, the one who's sure. in charge of that. Sure, but I've yeah. never had someone like make me a consent form either. Mm, mm. Wow. Or once there was once a consent form because it was an after school program. I um, mean, they were quite young, but you know, it was fairly general information. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, as you're talking, you make me think there's a lot that, that comes to mind and even 
around the conversation of young people essentially taking ownership of who they are. I mean, I think that's one of the major themes, even in this whole conversation, is not just young people, but people, you know, period, (laughs) everyone sort of owning their identity and owning who they are. And even if that is, I don't want to say resistance per se, but even if that is resisting to social constructs or sort of normative constructs of who they are or who they're supposed to be, I think one of the major takeaways that I have in this conversation is that everyone has the right to own their identity, their gender, their sexuality as it is fit to them. Yes, I completely agree. And I also want to add, particularly because it was National Coming Out Day recently, Mm-hmm. And also people get to choose who, where, and why they come out and that it is not anyone's responsibility or requirement to have to share any identity, particularly mm-hmm. if it means that they will be in a less secure space because of it. And I think there's a lot of language about, oh, we have to come out, we have to come out, come out of the closet. And it, it can be very uncomfortable for some folks for whom that's just not plausible. Sure, sure. So tell us about the work that you do as a coach and let us know how people can stay in contact with you. Sure. I mostly work with adults. I have had a couple of people reach out to see if I could speak to their children, but that would be based off of like a parental consent form, except for like, I do do sex education for young people, but when it's one-on-one work, I do work with adults. And then I do, I review people's curriculum or I consult on how to create more inclusive programming and thinking about building inclusive workspaces not just related to gender or LGBTQI status, but also other identities. So are we thinking about different religions in this workspace? Are we thinking about the ways that people have access to doing their work? So for all my sex-related work, you can find me at sexpositiveyou.com or as Yael the Sex Geek on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and all that shebang. (laughs) And for non-sex-related work, such as my more identity-focused I'm also, I have a small publishing company. Hmm. That work is through kvibrations.com. Sure, sure, sure. Well, thank you for this, Yael. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your enlightenment, for your perspectives, for your experiences. Thank you for you, for sharing, (laughs) for sharing all of your knowledge, your love and your wisdom. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you got in touch and I'm excited that you have this space that you've created. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to the Equity Experience podcast. I hope this information that was shared to you will also enlighten you, empower you, and educate you to help as you strive and make progress towards being an equitable and inclusive educator, leader, and person in society. Thank you so much for your time. Make sure to catch us on the next episode. And thank you for being here. Until next time, Be well and be blessed. Bye-bye.